0: The shulig miche tren, Hvidr'n elge le lingve haug, O hun marka herrene, Beorne d'elge sin shakar. I spier ma reishtish gildom, Sa nar frigum so, he said of the shore,
1: the praises of Yvele have been sung before now that wild lakeland between Macroom and Gugonbarra in West Cork has been praised by the scribes of the Book of Leinster by Angus the Culdee in the eighth century, by Milmdow O'Gormain in the twelfth, by almost every foreign traveller since then and in our own time by many of the major literary figures, O'Connor, O'Falloyne, Corkery and O'Reardown among them. A song, a very famous song, written by a girl from Yves a 150 years ago, gave us an excuse to add to the tributes, and to sketch the extraordinary literary history of this lovely countryside. This is the country of Barra, of Maude of of Paddy Buckley the tailor and his wife Anstey, the home from home and the inspiration of Corkery, Ofeiláin and O'Connor. It was the cradle for the revival of the Irish language in the early days of the century, and against all the odds part of it is still a Gailtacht. If you visit the place, take the road from Macroon to Inchigeelagh, through Beilachan up to Edindóf, to Gugon Borra. Gugaan is the focal point of the region. Here on an island in the lake, in the shadow of the mountains that separate Cork from Kerry, Barra the Saint founded his hermitage of the 6th century. Here the literary history of the region began. The English writer and artist Robert Gibbings fell in love with the place. He said of it,
2: The road winds with the river, at one moment level beside untroubled waters, in a wide valley where lapwings wheel, at the next tortuous above a torrent where salmon leap, then for a while calmly, tracing the contours of lake shores, with range upon range of hills to the south and west the cones of sheehy and duchel high above them all. Finally, a game of hide-and-seek among the crags and heather-covered ridges, the road a track, the lea a tarn, and the smell of turf fires sweet in the air. Ochre and lavender of heath and rocks, and gold of bursting gorse, silver of lichens and the ink-green ling, and coral-red of myrtle-buds. One last mile of twists and turns, sharp hills and sudden dips, and then go In old times, one needed to wash in Jordan to be cleansed. One needed to dip in Siloam for sight to be restored. But today, merely to stand beside the lake at Gugan Borough brings to one's whole being a peace beyond the
1: telling. Lochirke, they called the place before the people renamed it in Bara's honour. An early life of the saint says,
2: After this, Bara dwelt on Lochirke in Ethergol to the east of the lake. And this was the school that Bara had on the lake.
1: Oling was his tutor. The litany of the Book of Leinster tells us that in time the hermitage grew to be a large monastery. Seven fifties of holy bishops, seven fifties
2: of priests, seven fifties of deacons, seven fifties of subdeacons, with all holy monks endowed with the grace of God at Lochirke, on the borders of Muskri and the Acha the commemoration of Lochirke, wherein is a little bell melodious. Many as leaves on the branches are the saints that are therein. Hos invoco in auxilium meum.
1: The commemoration of Saint Finbar and his hermitage in ancient Irish poetry is extensive. Angus the Caledonian, not more than two centuries after Barra's death, wrote: Iachach o sues suaser alne, a searon arat rede er cool bide.
2: Iachach, the lovely land from Cork to Mizen Head, are under the protection of Barra.
1: Another old quatrain, this one from the ninth century, says. Bara,
2: the fire of wisdom, loves, humility to men of the world. He never saw in want a person that he did not relieve.
1: And the twelfth century martyrology of O Gormine also refers to Bara's love of the poor.
2: May chaste Bara from Corkig be before me in
1: heaven, for he was good and kind to God's poor. God's poor have been coming in pilgrimage to Gugon Barra from the foundation of the hermitage. There is no evidence that it was anything more than a local pilgrimage until the beginning of the 18th century, however. O'Sullivan Beira passed the lake by without praying at Borre Shrine on the famous retreat from Glengareth. Balivourne was indulgenced by the Pope in 1601, but Gougon was not. Neither did Sir Philip Cox mention the place in his Regnum Corkagience, published in 1687, although he dwelt at length on the neighbouring shrine at Balivourne. But due to the zeal of a Calced Carmelite monk, Father O'Mahony, in the early days of the 18th century, the local pilgrimage became famous all over Munster. Charles Smith wrote in his book The Ancient and Present State of the County and City of Cork in
2: 1750. This place, Gugon since the time of St Finbar, has been frequented by many devotees as a place of pilgrimage, and to get to it is little less than to perform one. In the island are the ruins of a chapel with some small cells, a kitchen and other conveniences, erected by a late recluse, Father O'Mahony, who lived a hermit in this spot twenty-eight years. Round part of the lake is a pleasant green bank, with a narrow causeway from it to the island. That part of the island unbuilt upon, Father Mahony converted into a garden, planted several fruit trees in it with his own hands, and made it a luxurious spot for a hermit. He was buried here in 1728.
1: O'Mahony had failed in his efforts to get permission from Rome to supervise the pilgrimage. After his death, it became riotous, and in 1817 the Bishop of Cork formally excommunicated all those who visited Gaugan on the feast of St John in midsummer. Nowadays the pilgrimage has resumed its ancient penitential character. Thousands come to pray at the island's shrine from all over Munster, and for the local people it is a day of devotion to their own borough. Whom the scribe of the Book of Ballymote described so long ago as
2: Barra, crystal jewel of pearly splendour, golden salmon, angelic blossom, guardian tree, shield of the gale, shelterer of the souls of his mountain people.
1: The solitude of Gugon continues to exert its influence on poets. Sean O'Reardaigne, born in the neighbouring parish of Balivourne, wrote one of his finest poems about the place. His was a private pilgrimage. Ilan, Ilaunelle.
3: Lasmodan alone in Wagan bara. Ta sasanoch a geskerchs a loch, Ta irne ro laum erin alone, Ach ride a mask no ginis no gloch, Snee le moor irim mogol lodge. Ride a noon as aesthets an alone, le smintis mara nae, wo hymnin bara nae for the nilon, Aesthets low in anyhine aneid. Aurus iar nol eir Óvarus Ovaras even luma the he agas karim se of the sminte Achni fistam un na smynti ar er istas amintin. Le breithi gan vri, le baurin lian, húrling lia er ma Mar xlahi leich ta do trölech aglieve meintin. Naivis Lena i vagoncluvlie de Hanahe Christ no de swinte. Tanther mar vien figermannom no li wil lína. lena. Ta baras naiv na kentusachrie stala puquin de vigo. Ta trschum khrie dan akkel gandricht bich diel um hebra. On bigot. Ta rafli naiv sa nair gurd, son ngea fu Ta padir hound om kheena leg, is ma smynta a sheda rish. On saer vuel is smynta naiv, da sa savel nu. Da xoala tarkishnid on thail, is gohen vi klagar kheoll. On kheoll ra chelish a mi, an ain. Nilaini beon of wady lawn, is true a horse, my haig. Ilan Gahene Evere in a hagney, ta ilan shane, Stusser marinaun is trail Na bee horten hrihagloid lahit hain, keg a loshkish ed vehita, to hussafane. Marnilo not a husk in to sail. Nile not a cabuduacht o vel go bêl. Kegar kumachtod fader gil er velvigd dê, du skolte se do hosse kert le duul sa Ach is fader foos an tosasin, er ilan seen, a an go kune kogernig er veule dê, nør du rinke se gomachnasoch er gobe têl. Ilan var a naifo. Tron hone kehaxsung o gane, Kewi Kremi Fali the horda is kohar ilan the furis ae grano im himpul dasker ir kreen chas ash da bachra noche lagam da mar chorpo doch na vajig mar skrivin brak er far skrivin elitrasnir hhnuk gankus glunus krytis spag va joig hhnuk dauruv yendi avara him loibning egg got rid id id enid, it did huss a day, it's tussent tail, and so it yanklin naifer. tig ailacht at the svedir swayed it on sa hain, so tallest knavoch follow. Ta saltne sear she is crawed on two fiera, Ta dulse rod ta cast the calm, don on vogs is fiddin screvinch on the ground, Neil keech nor coor a naivowl, Ta manach screetivus's howl, She a barrel lub n'a yexa. A ancient hain'er last day, Ig shin' a lion gachene, Un creased the tawn illish gay, Un cast a tawn of rete. Is fear wakasawl da illan shane, Ilan saw var a naifer, Un creased the tawn on Fukir at in Ego On Sasanoch Agus Mahain Tosasanoch a Geskirch to Loch, Smassim Shigur Berglech er at Tilon. Achni Fasachtum nach Eskirchter Loch on Sasanoch, the Unric at Ilon. Ride the noon is Falk at Tilon, Falk at Slon Les Mintis Maranoev. Ride the Ride the Noon a
1: In the ninth century, according to the Chronicles of Ireland, a collection of ancient hymns made by Meredith Hanmer in 1571, a hymn called Roptumovale was chanted by the monks of Gougon. Sean O'Reeda transcribed it for fittingly Korchoshli. A few miles down the road from Gougon, there's a fine farmhouse owned this many a generation by people called de burke Into this family a girl called Má de Later married in the year 1792. It's hardly necessary to describe the times into which she was born. She lived through the age of the Volunteers and the heady days of the French Revolution in 98. She saw the emergence of O'Connell as the new leader of the Irish nation and she lived through the famine. She was a poet and a good one and though she never aspired to writing literature, she achieved it. Her most famous song commemorates a battle in the Tides War, in which her sons fought, 150 years ago in January 1822. Anzias Somminehain, who was born nearby, speaks about the Battle of Caymania and about the song.
4: In the opening decades of the last century, the British government's enforcement of the tide levies had become so unbearable in most parts of the county Cork that large areas were in open revolt. In December 1821 and in January 1822, there were regular raids on the houses of landlords and their agents for firearms and ammunition. White by arms had been very meagre up to then. In the acquisition of arms by this means, the white boys of Yves were not found wanting. On the night of the 10th and 11th of January in 1822, a party from Balingarian came in here, raided to good effect, the houses of landlord, agents and camp followers in the Bantry district. Lord Bantry, having got word of this audacious act, mustered the local militia force and set out in pursuit of the raiders. Now, this retaliatory move the raiding party had anticipated and they had taken precaution with some of their bantry confederates that they should keep watch and warn should it materialise. So... No sooner had the militia moved eastward from Bantry than a warning shout was raised from the, an overlooking hillock. This warning shout was taken up right along the suspected route and thus was the alarm passed from mouth to mouth as far as came near and the upper regions of the Lee Valley. Then and thus having been forewarned of the approaching invasion, the Keminir and neighbouring white boys assembled to meet the challenge of the invaders. That is what Mara Vee refers to in Kaheminia, her best known and most famous song when she said On Lugor Lahvadigan She Duet Gachar Narwalishtriel Yes, she had heard and witnessed it all, living as she did at the time, quite adjacent to the eastern approach to the Pass of Caymania. When the militia arrived, the white boys had mobilized on the upland south of the River Lee, a short distance east of the Pass of Caymania. Now, in those days, there was no road way through the pass as there is today. But there was what I might call a horse track along the mountainside of Ducal overlooking. It was by this track that the foot and mounted militia came. As they advanced the ambushing fight by party opened fire. The militia took cover a movement misinterpreted by the ambushers who perhaps rather indiscreetly left cover and advanced in pursuit of the retreating militia as they thought. The concealed militia immediately opened fire, killing two of the white boys. Then there ensued a lively skirmish and some hand-to-hand fighting in the course of which Shiamas Pranach of Turindov found himself confronted by a yeoman, John Smith. Both set to fire, but somehow or other each of their loaded guns failed. Shiamas Pranach closed on his adversary and he laid him low with a smack of his gunstock. At this point, Kruhur Byolede a brother of the poets, came on the scene and seeing the yeoman attempt to reload, he advanced, stabbed him with his bayonet, inflicting a wound which proved fatal. Sometime later, the white boys were forced to retreat, their ammunition having been exhausted. Now, this encounter perpetuated in Maravine, your latest famous Arkhan Kemenya, took place 150
5: years ago in January 1822. <laughs> Jallium fading is again is against the guilty of the and cold it's and yard the the Cobra.
1: It's almost heresy to say it, but I don't think Kaheminio is Moidevui's best song. Pride of place I'd give to a song called Avodni Lado of This song was written in 1843. It's a repeal song, and as one would expect, Moide placed her trust in O'Connell from Yvroch. It seems that the reformation of the Musgari yeomen under Sir Augustus Warren struck terror into the people of Yvleda and Musgary, and Moide in her song saw but one method of dealing with Warren a method of which her hero O'Connell would no doubt disapprove. Volleys of bullets and sharp pikes in the brute's bellies, everybody must be ready to attack them, God's curse on their company. They'll yet be down without a possession under the sun, their hounds and beagles and horses gone from them, so that they'll have no further interest in gaming in the chase. A translation which doesn't, of course, do justice to the original.
2: Beg stella piki píky gáirad da Beloch is cryarálav ga chenje is malaach Dera a goplocht beg faan lag fees polyéne gan nes a theil an a gorum a as a gopul trta gan doiling ngaim na luuka.
1: This recording
2: is an old
6: one. The hairy man No, go no the foolish girl in don't believe în fin, gan fest, goska plerda ruska. Gan irin celje vidoi klemu, do hogn skel son chutz, le, gras, le, mein, de, t- Farvna havna herun mudr
1: Tourist guides will tell you about Callanil's jingle many of us learned in our school days there is a green island in Lone Gugaan Barra. Máidhaví they haven't heard of apparently. Her language is not known to them. But Irish is still spoken in Máidhaví's country and in the village of Beallon Ghaerig in the early days of the national resurgence a college was founded to help young men and women learn the beautiful Irish of Yves Leide. Here the old itinerant Irish teachers, the heroic Múntoíri Tháistil, were trained. The men who travelled around the country teaching Irish in village halls and in schoolhouses and in country kitchens at night in the early days of Hyde's Gaelic League. That college in Ballingeri can boast of many famous pupils, O'Failhoyne, Corkery and O'Connor among them. Sean O'Failhoyne describes a blissful summer there learning Irish.
7: Less than two hours later, I got off my bicycle on the hillock outside in Chigila, always afterwards to be my mark of arrival in the true West. Beyond the first foothills, across the loose stone walls of the road, the outcropping rock, the sparse wind-torn trees, the first few tiny fields excavated painfully by generations of cuttiers out of a hard, infertile, sweat-making land softened only by the reed-edged lake, I saw the smoke-blue mountains now quite near, On their peaks, white clouds larger far than themselves, rose into the blue sky. I heard over my head a lark, trilling invisibly. And when I saw and felt all this, and knew that all about me people spoke an ancient tongue that I could as yet only partly interpret. I experienced the final obliteration of time that turns a moment into eternity. In that moment, the crude photograph at whose runic symbols I had gazed so often in the poems of Thomas Rua, the old ruined chapel near the ancient rocks edging the sea, Became clear to me as a mirror, remounting my bicycle with a pounding heart, I passed through my mirror into reality. I pedalled on past the village, on beside its lake, now appearing now disappearing, past small white cottages through the village of Bay. After that, I came on the lee again, now a mere rocky stream, until I came to the farm and the farmhouse called Tourin where I was to stay. It wasn't a picturesque house. Little in these parts, except the scenery is picturesque. It was a plain, cement-fronted, slated house of two stories. I saw an uncombed garden in front, red with fuchsias and old cottage roses. I saw a long stone loft and byres of uncemented stone to its left, a new corrugated iron barn, and more byres directly opposite across the road. Foothills, rose rockily, front and rare. Later my friend Christy Lucy whom I first met in that house was shot while trying to escape from it into those rocky foothills. At the end of the path down from the house beside the road there was a well separated from the road by a light fuchsia hedge. As I got off my bicycle I heard a girl's laugh from behind the fuchsias and looking through it I saw Eileen's brown eyes laughing at me between its scarlet bells. She came forward, still laughing with pleasure, dressed in a brown frock, her skin almost as brown, her black hair astray, her her cheeks fuchsia-red, and standing on one muscular leg she looked at me as I did at her quizzically and affectionately, our barrier and our bond. Then she brought me in and presented me to Benny Thóma. The old lady welcomed me in Irish as warmly as my old aunt Nan Ware back in Rathkeel would have done and at once I felt I was at home. We proved to be a company of about twenty or thirty men and women, youths and girls, all as light-hearted as children. Their gaiety was something I've never experienced before or since. The women and girls shared rooms in the house. The men slept in the dry stone loft, which had been turned for the summer into a simple dormitory. We ate in separate sittings about ten at a time, at the long table in the dining room, and we always ate well. We spoke only Irish, often asking for a word or a phrase or a correct pronunciation from the more practised. We We'd come from all parts of Ireland. There were clerks, students, craftsmen, carpenters, masons, and electrical engineer. Two of them, who were more serious than the rest of us, had been in the Rising in Dublin and had been released from jail in the general amnesty of the year before but all of us were reborn of that rising and all that led to it, so that the language acted both as a matrix to the tissues of our political faith and as its sign and password. Our zeal to to talk Irish bound us into a community, a a new, glowing, persecuted, or about-to-be-persecuted political sect. One small sign of this was that we all... Adopted, and like myself, most of us retained for the rest of our lives the ancient original Gaelic forms of our anglicized names, so that from being Whelan, I became and remain as my children do, or Foiloin. We spent the livelong days together in groups. We spent half the day down in the village studying the language and the green corrugated tin shed grandiosely called the College. The rest of the day we spent swimming in the rock pools or climbing the mountains or cycling to the farther glens or dancing informally by the roadside at night or, more formally, in the college or boating on the lake if the moon was up or, or simply sitting in the kitchen listening to some local boy or girl singing a traditional Irish song or playing old tunes on the fiddle or we merely sat and, and talked. Late hours were the common rule uh, I was always so pleasantly tired, so full of oxygen, I, I could have slept under the hedge or on the stone floor. On hot nights I often slept in the clothes on which I stood high up in the hay of the outdoor hay barn, waking only when I heard a horse's hooves on the road or somebody working in the stone byres below. Nowadays, the language that once spoke to teeming life and which is already speaking to fewer and fewer, will soon speak only to ghosts. Bit by bit, the old life dies, the old symbols wither away, and I and my like who warmed our hands at the fires of the past are torn in two as we stand on this side of the bridge and look back in anguish at the doomed island beyond it. We loved this valley, this lake, this ruined chapel, this rude cloister because of their enclosure, their memories, their silence. Many times then and in after years we entered the silent, deadened coom to climb the mountain beyond. Once we got lost there in a summer fog aiming for the minute lock up there called the Lake of the Speckled Trow dark as ink and cold as ice water visited otherwise only by mountain sheep. When we reached the top of the Coombe, after some tough climbing, the fog lifted, and we came on another valley and a vast view westward across other mountain tips far over the Sunset Sea. On those fortresses, what could touch us? We enjoyed among them what I may call a juvenile fantasy of grown desire, planning tiny cottages on either side of this lost valley or that facing one another, so that by day we would descend to the lake and be together and by night and sea, each the other's beckoning light across the darkness of the glen.
1: Undoubtedly, Colost and the Moon played a major part in the survival of Irish in the district of Yves It gave a fresh impetus to storytelling and to traditional singing. Dírmaid de Coyte was the last of the famous Sánacháhé of Yves Good as he was, he wasn't as good, and he certainly wasn't as famous, as the tailor of Goethe and the Péke, Paddy Buckley. Had he found his Boswell and Mr. Eric Cross? Mr. Cross's book was banned when it was first published in 1942. The tailor and his beautiful wife, Anstey, became the subject of a great debate in the Senate, and the book was deemed so obscene that quotations from it, read by Sir John Keane, who defended it, were ordered to be struck from the records of the House because, and it's on record, pornographers would buy the proceedings of the Irish Senate as an anthology of evil literature. The tailor and his wife, whose cottage was known to everybody who came to Eve learning Irish, for their Irish was magnificent, suddenly became out of bounds. They were hounded by the clergy. The 75-year-old man was ordered onto his knees and made burn Mr Cross's book by one zealous clergyman. Frank O'Connor paid both Mr Cross and Mr Buckley the compliment of including the tailor's account of the jury case in Gougon in his edition of Irish Short Stories for the World's Classics. It's read by Eamon Keane. Was I ever telling you about the jury case we had up at the hotel?
8: It wasn't really a trial, but a coroner's inquest. But they had a system very much like a trial in a courthouse. There was a jury, and they had to listen to the evidence and find out what had happened to the man and give their opinion. It all happened over a man who was found dead in the island. He had fallen over a bank, and a slap had fallen on top of him and broke his neck. Well, the following morning, the coroner and the sergeant came along. They were collecting a jury. There were twelve of us. There was the Sheep, and Cork Echo and Danby Dam, and the Rocky Mountaineer, and several others. Some of them were dead now, may the of them have seen them. There was a priest once preached a sermon on the twelve apostles, and was failing him to describe what type of men they were at all. He wanted to tell the people that they were just ordinary folk, that there was nothing grand or smart about them. So, after he had thought for a while, he said, There were twelve working men. Farmers and fishermen and such class of people. There were twelve ignorant men. As ignorant as any twelve men you'd find in this parish. And God knows, that wouldn't be difficult. Well, the twelve apostles were like the jury we had that day. As ignorant as any twelve men you'd find in this parish. The divilly bit which we all assembled and we struck away up to the hotel. They hadn't an idea what was going to happen to them. Some of them thought that they were going to be tried for killing the man. Others thought that they were going to his wake and more of them thought that they were going to shoulder him to his grave. You see, it was the first time there had been a jury case in this district for many long years, and it was all a mystery to them, for none of them except myself had ever travelled. Good enough, we got to the hotel, and the body was lying in a room, and we all had a look at it. The poor fellow was dead enough, there was no doubt about that, God rest his soul. The coroner asked us if we recognised the man, and we did, for he was well known to most of us. After we all had our fill of the site, we had a couple of more drinks, and then we went into the room where the case was to be tried. There were chairs for each of us, and the sergeant and the coroner were there. The sergeant told others that they would have to take the oath and swear in the book. Then Cork Echo spoke up. He hadn't said a word to this. He said that he wouldn't swear, because swearing was a sin, and he started quoting bits out of the catechism. He wasn't going to swear with his eyes open. No, it'd be altogether different if he did it unannounced himself, but he didn't enough thing taken yet. The sergeant started quoting bits from a book he had in his pocket, and then the coroner joined in, but they were only making a poor hand at the business. I explained it to him, and all about the business, and that battle was done with. To save time, we held the book and threes and took the oath together. When he came to Danby Dam, he said that he wanted to swear alone, and he wouldn't put his hand in the book with anyone else, so he swore alone. He held the book as though it was going to bite him. And when it is swearing done, he looked behind him as though he expected the devil was there waiting to take him. The sergeant and the coroner got out their notebooks ready and we were all set for the business. Just as we were going to start, the sheep got up and started to go out. The coroner wanted to know where the hell he thought he was going and the sheep explained that he was going behind for he had drink taken and his bladder was weak. So we waited for the sheep to return, and when he'd returned and sat down and lighted his pipe, we started again. The sergeant read his statement, and we listened. Then the man who had found the body told how he had come to find it, and the coroner asked if we accepted that. The year before, the man who had found the body had sold the Rocky Mountaineer a mare, and the mare was faulty. The Rocky Mountaineer didn't find this out until after the deal was made, And he could do nothing but wait till he got the chance of his man again. And this was his chance. I declare to God, didn't he say that the man was a liar? And that there was no one there at the time but him? And he might have pushed the man over the wall. Well, they had a few words. And the sergeant called the meeting to order. And the coroner wasn't able to make out what had happened until the sergeant explained the affair to him. And then the coroner understood and the business proceeded. The coroner explained what had happened and what sort of a verdict we could bring in either death by misadventure, or fellow to say, or murder by person unknown. And he explained his own opinion. The rocky mountaineer jumped up, and set was plain murder, and he didn't care a damn what anyone else said, for he had had dealings with the man who found the body, and he'd swindled him over the sale of a horse, and if he would do that, murder was not in him. So we had that all over again. It was a very warm day, and the room was small, and what with the smoke and the arguments... We decided that a drink or two wouldn't do anyone any harm. So we retired for a drink or two, and when we came back, we took up the business where we'd left off. The coroner counted and found one missing. Sky High, who was one of the jury, had not come back. The sergeant went off to find him and found him on his way home and brought him back. He said it wasn't in his line at all, that he didn't understand it, and he had a cow at home that was due to carve, and he'd be better there but the coroner made him stay. The coroner talked to them then about fellow the sea, and he explained all about it to us. When he'd finished, Dan Dam got up and said that he couldn't understand it at all. How could the fellow fall into the sea? he asked, when the sea was fifteen miles away as the crow flies. Be damn I couldn't agree to that at all. Be damn it could be fell into the lake, but be damn it could never be fell into the sea. The coroner explained again, but Danby Dam couldn't understand him still. Be damn if the fellow fell into the sea, he would be wet, wouldn't he? Be damned, but his clothes were quite dry. he a be damned it couldn't be that at all, but something other thing. The coroner explained suicide too, but Danby Dam hadn't heard of that either. He wanted to know if was Irish. In the middle of this argument, there was a knock at the door, and in walked Wax's wife with his dinner. She's was the devil of a great pounder of a woman who would make a grand door for a car house. Now, while a wax is only a small class of a man, would a fierce appetite, and his wife was afraid that he'd die if he didn't have his dinner. He was a great friend of Danby Dam's, and the two of them started on the dinner and forgot all about inquest. Not that it mattered much, for the two of them were ever better at eating than they were at thinking. And the wife had brought up a grand potash of pig's head and cabbage and potatoes. At last, the business was coming to a head, and the coroner asked us to consider our verdict. Then the fun started. One said one thing and one another. The effects of the drink had worn off the Rocky Mountaineer, and he was all for murder again. The sheep said that he didn't understand it at all, and he would not care to give his opinion. That was with the height of manness. He wouldn't even give his opinion unless he was paid for it. That the business was all wrong and that no good would ever come of it, and the less we had to do with it the better. He hadn't got over the swe- swearing part of it yet. I tried to knock sense into their heads, but by God was failing me. Now that man be had a belly full of food, he had an idea. Bidam, said he, doesn't doesn't the man say that it was dead by misadventure? Be dam, isn't he from the government? Be he it wouldn't be right to agree with him so we must say something else, be dam. Oh, no. There were others of them with queer notions, and there were some of them so scared stiff that they were just sitting like dummies and saying nothing at all. Twelve good men and through them, um, You'd search the earth before you'd find an equal pack of mugwumps of gashes. I went up to the coroner, who was a decent, sensible type of a man, and explained the position to him. We sent the rest them into the bar for a drink, and I and the coroner settled the business between us and we brought in every dictated of judge by misadventure. And, of course, I added a vote of sympathy with the poor fellow's relations in their trouble, and we left the jury to drink itself stupid. But they could never do that if they were drinking to this day, for they were stupid before they started. Twelve men, as ignorant as any twelve men you would find in this parish, and God knows that it'd be as enough with their wake blathers and their sins and their cows' carving and their pigs head in cabbage, and their fell
1: in the sea. On my last visit to Yves Leide, some months ago, I asked the question that one is apt to ask in all of the one visits, will Irish survive? Certainly there seemed to be more Irish spoken in 1971 than there was when I stayed in Mr. Ophiallon's beloved Thúdín 17 years ago. I asked Anzí Sámeínícháin whether he thought Irish would survive in the glens of this beautiful land between Beilhíglán and Gúgán whether today's generation would deprive tomorrows of a birthright as old as the sanctuary of Borough in the mountain lake. Sean Ofeiláin is despondent. One hopes Anzés Omeinicháin is right.
4: Nííík amé a chúis <laughs> na mátach, agus tám láin túraálhag a Agus na a dhéad lín tí, a chím in ish na dhúgum a chúir de danáit, agus gélín Taylor could the sun of grave aid her a singeling no again to romp aku with the trash casa had and is it ta miador son aguas malena only when
0: we can voy all the night darling bow when fresh the tavern near she's born when he no tres she harm Nu sim do hultig är stort, aller härmy vigtigt är att jag morhem på läsande riktig är kedevlaslinnschol. I saling i raka elta gäddan av miljonor. Oh, who gone barren, I have a ghat ever faced go cold. Blood no, on a vina drenor kill hegga stam we hink lorio. I travel see he fell, every head a